1: hello welcome to finding annie delighted that you are enjoying the podcast it feels kind of like we're on a roll now feels like i'm finding my place in this wild west of podcast land i'm kind of on my horse i'm galloping And uh, I kind of know where I stand a bit more and what feels good and I'm kind of relaxing into the conversations. And I'm so happy with the range of guests that we've had and just so delighted and appreciative of every message that I'm getting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If anything to say at all, findinganimack at gmail.com. That's where to find us. This week's podcast is a real good one I say that every week but I really mean it um, our guest is incredible his name is Dr Rupi but we're going to start as we start every week with a memory and this is a memory provided by my mammy Rosie Mack and uh, it's a kind of snippet of a conversation that I had with her at the start of the year at home in our house in Dublin and it's all about animals check it out please enter the podcast Rosie Mack
2: When you had a sow and she had a litter of, of between 10 and 17. Then you had 10 or to 17 little pigs to sell and they made very good money. But the thing is we got very fond of the pigs. They were allowed out, In remember the gate into the yard? Mm-hmm. They were allowed out in there to wander around at their leisure and they were always so contented I and mean, when you went over to talk to them, they just snuffle their nose on your hand. And some that we had specially long, we had General McGeeb for a very long time. I don't know why. Who named him? My mother, of course. That was General McGeeb. Yeah, that was your dad'll tell you what. Maybe the Crimean War. So they named a pig after a general from the Crimean War. Yes. Why? Well, well that's because he was. A, he was on the, even though this was a she, um, he was on the news all the time, and he must have been a good general. I don't know. My father thought was, he was appropriate name for our sow, <laughs> and uh, my father killed them on the premises. How? Well, we boiled pots and pots of water on the stove, and then he went out, and the the pig was let out. And he went over and stuck a knife in its throat and then it screamed and screamed and it was caught and tied by the back feet up high, still alive. And then he cut right up its middle. Well he stunned at first, sorry, but the stunning didn't necessarily work very well. With a sledgehammer. That's how it was done. So that would put you off ever eating pig or any kind of meat.
1: (laughs) Oh man, I mean, we inherit so many things off our parents, both conscious and subconscious. Um, It's clear listening to my mum, that I've inherited her love of animals and her love of pigs, especially. Um, My mum, as you can tell, had such an attachment to them. And because of that, we've all been brought up with a really healthy respect for the high intelligence of pigs, the cleanliness of pigs, their sentience, their charm, and also just with an awareness of all animals as sentient things, who feel emotions, who have attachments, and because of this, we were brought up in that house in Dublin where I was speaking to my mum as vegetarian. My mom hated cooking. She was the one who cooked most of the time. Um, we had a set meal every night of the week probably just because she had four kids and it was easier. There wasn't any, hey, tonight I think I might make this one. It was very much like a functional, I have to put food on the table and this is what it's going to be. And I remember very clearly uh, these set meals. So there was chips, eggs and beans on a Friday, oven chips. There was macaroni cheese with sweet corn from a tin on Wednesdays. Always my favourite meal, FYI. Uh, My mum used to make homemade coleslaw with that, which was banging. And there was pizza one night, there's a thing called Mexican stew for a while. I'm not quite sure what that was. It was kind of vegetables in a kind of stock. Um. I don't know why it was called Mexican, my mom and dad lived in Mexico for a bit. So maybe it was that. I don't know. But yeah, so there was always kind of set meals and my school lunches. Oh, God, they're they've really gone down in my memory, like imprinted. Even the lunchbox is kind of a beige plastic affair. Um, there was always a soggy tomato sandwich in a kind of whole grain bread, a small plastic cellophane lunch bag filled with salted peanuts there was an apple every day. And for me, I used to get like a hunk of cucumber. It was like a four to five inch length of cucumber that I would kind of gnaw at like a rabbit. I used to fucking love cucumber. Um, So yeah, a really vegetarian lunch (laughs) every day. Um, And I've gone through phases in my life of eating meat and of not so all the way through childhood I didn't eat meat then I left home when I was 17 18 and I ate meat with total impunity for about 10 years all the way through my 20s fucking loved it and then at about 30 I stopped again I became vegan for a while and then fell off the vegan wagon from a great height when I was pregnant mainly due to butter I love butter and tato crisps which I also love Um, But I've come to a place now, a really nice place um, that I think, again, is just part of growing up a bit and and, and not feeling like I have to be so extreme about things and kind of finding a balance. Um, I've come to a place where I've kind of cast aside the label of veganism for me and I eat as much vegan as possible. um, But I do still sometimes eat real butter And sometimes, um, more rarely recently, but sometimes eat fish. Um, And that works for me. It works really well. So I'm kind of like 90% vegan. And I really enjoy a slice of fucking cake sometimes, um, non-vegan cake. And I really enjoy toast with real butter sometimes. So it's just kind of moderation. And that works for me. And I find that I'm able to stick to it way more and way more realistically if I am if I'm moderate and I allow myself the odd exception and I think that's a really good way of looking at it of not putting too much pressure on yourself um to be like 100% vegan all the time with regards to meat any meat as in red meat or white meat I have um I haven't eaten it for years now and I feel like I've kind of crossed threshold there and that is mainly due to the kind of morality of killing animals um I was speaking to my sister about it a while ago because she's a staunch vegan now and all her kids are vegan and um, she's very, very into that lifestyle. Um, and we were talking about when you are not a meat eater and you see those things that you see every day when it comes to eating animals. So I'm talking about the meat aisle in a supermarket or kind of raw mince meat or the smell of blood from a butcher's and how stuff like that which is so normalized in our society when you cross this threshold it feels like horror it feels horrific because you're looking at it from the perspective of a sentient animal having been killed um, to be at this point so you're looking at it in the same way as you look at kind of human flesh or your pet dog's flesh, that kind of way. I remember passing our local butcher last year, the night before Halloween, and they had dressed their window with three shelves of pig's heads. Um, And they dressed the pig's heads um, in a kind of like Halloween style with like funny hats and sunglasses and kind of cobwebs all around them. It was so dark to me. I found it so macabre and I'll never forget it. I wanted to go into the butcher and kind of say to the people who did that can you not see how fucking disgusting and disrespectful that is to the animals that you've killed i was with my kid who was kind of staring gobsmacked at the window never seen anything like it so i didn't go in but i'll never forget it um and and it's very simple because I, i feel like anyone who takes the time to find the facts it's very very clear that there is no discernible difference between pigs and your average house pet, except for maybe the fact that pigs are more clever. They i just looked it up. They outperform three year old human kids, right, on cognition tests. So they are cleverer than your average three year old and they are smarter than any domestic animal. And animal experts consider them more trainable than cats or dogs. I mean, it's more common now to have pig as a pet. I'm fucking dying to have a pig as a pet. Um, But I don't have the land at my house to kind of give the pig what it needs in terms of to be able to fucking stick its nose in the ground and make a mess and roll around in the mud. But um, it is a dream of mine one day. So, yeah, I feel like we're conditioned through marketing and kind of systemic food manufacturing patterns to think of pigs and cows and chickens and sheep as kind of lesser animals than dogs and cats, as animals that are somehow okay to be slaughtered in the millions, in the billions, or it, we're kind of mostly just conditioned to not think at all. Um, now, meat eating has never been so talked about and debated as it is today. The, di- the dairy market is plummeting um, vegan food products are totally ubiquitous um, it's really, you know, changing, you know, Greg's as a fucking vegan sausage roll. Uh, you know, it's really changing and shifting. And a lot of that is due to the environmental aspect. Um, and for me, you know, anything that turns people away from eating meat is a good thing. But uh, crucially, I just find myself, con- you know, continuing to be astounded at how the human race seems to have its head in the sand about just the kind of moral abomination of billions of sentient animals who are raised and drugged and killed every year for fast food for me it's about thinking about what you're eating and where it comes from it's about knowing what you're eating and where it comes from it's about transparency it's about education in schools it's about nutrition being part of a doctor's learning in terms of qualifying to be a kind of a medical practitioner um And with all of this in mind, I wanted to speak to someone who was qualified to talk about that stuff. And I found the most amazing person. And I'm so excited about this guest. As I said, his name is Dr. Rupi Allier. He is so fucking impressive, this guy. He's a a working GP um, and he's founded a project called The Doctor's Kitchen, in which he highlights the importance of food to be seen as medicine. Um, He has his own personal story, which is mad fascinating. And he is most importantly kind of a guru when it comes to how food affects human health and human well-being um, in every aspect, mental and physical. And I wanted to ask him about all of this stuff, but also in particular about eating animals and how that affects us as humans. So I'm excited for you to hear this. Let's do it. Enter the podcast, Dr. Rupi. Rupee, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. You
1: look like the healthiest person I've ever oh, met come in my on. life. Your <laughs> skin is like glowing. You look like you should be an ad for face cream.
0: <laughs> I just thought I was on a shift last night. I didn't get back no until way. like eleven thirty. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm pretty tired actually. Look, but you thank look, you
1: very much. Honestly, if you could see Dr. Rupee's skin, <laughs> you would be in awe. Um, so you are definitely an amazing advertisement for what you uh, what you like to put out there into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to start with a with with a question for those listening who it might not have occurred to them. About food and what it can do. How, in your words, can food be medicine?
0: I think food is probably one of the most important health interventions that anyone can make. Um, what we choose to put on our plate literally can have an impact on our immune system, our mental health, our brain. Um, it's not just about obesity, cardiovascular disease and things that we've been led to believe nutrition is all about. So macronutrients, carbohydrates and vitamins and minerals. Yes, they're really important, but it's a lot wider than that. And I think We need to almost retrain ourselves to have that relationship with food again, whilst appreciating the medicinal effects, Mm. also appreciating the wider culture around food as well. How we break bread, how we celebrate different cuisines and cultures through food, um, the celebratory aspects of it as well. And that's what makes it quite unique, I think, as a health Mm. intervention or as a medicine. Um, And... Yeah, I, 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 and that's kind of why I started the doctor's kitchen in the first place. It's to help people appreciate the beauty of food as well as the medicinal effects of eating well.
1: Mm. Have you found, since you've been writing your books and and kind of, and and doing your podcast, that there is a kind of terrifying ignorance of the fact that food like even just you saying oh yeah food can affect your brain food mm. can affect your mental health i think people might
0: have be like eh absolutely yeah why how yeah and you know what the the first ignorant person was myself uh, yeah. about this you know i think we can blame other people. We can blame the medical school system. I wasn't taught nutrition at medical school. We got less than five hours of training and even that wasn't practical that's information. Terrifying. And it's terrifying. And you know, it's the same as well. It hasn't changed. I'm, I'm in conversations with uh, medical student groups and they're, they're having the same experience that I had. And that's what we'll, we're currently working on with calorie medicine. We'll talk about that in a bit if you like. Um, but essentially I had to train myself. I had to sort of do a bit of a deep dive into the into the papers and stuff, and actually educate myself on the wealth of information there is out there on mm. nutritional medicine. You know, I can't blame other people for not knowing about this stuff, because we as medical practitioners, and I'm not just talking about doctors, I'm talking about nurses, physios, all allied health professionals, we don't engage in a conversation about diet. And if so, it's very lackluster, and we, we don't uh, emphasize the importance of it. And if you look at the statistics about how much diet has an impact on a lot of the preventable diseases across the world it's not just here in the UK there is a huge huge influence of what we choose to put on our plates uh, on the likelihood of conditions.
1: So with medicine and western medicine at what point did that huge factor of nutrition of nutrition being you know beneficial for your health because you know you think of indigenous tribes in the Amazon and and Mm. they they have a cure for everything and, and 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 that grows from the ground at what point does that did that kind of filter out of of the medicinal practice? Yeah, it's
0: really interesting that. I think there was a turning point uh, around 80 or 90 years ago when medical schools were first sort of um, uh, categorised, I guess. And there was a breakaway from phytotherapy, which is the use of medicinal plants. Um, Medical herbalism sort of fell out of fashion and we moved more toward a pharmaceutical model. So the history of medical schools, I think, is absolutely fascinating because I think that might have been the breakaway. But also, you know, if you look at Descartes and the, the, the difference between our mind and our mental health and our, our physical health that was sort of established hundreds of years ago and that, that may have been because of the church, um, I haven't done yeah. too much reading it's around this, it is it? quite fascinating when you think about it because that decision to separate mind and body mm-hmm. has influenced medicine going forward for, for hundreds of years Thus uh, thereafter um, and I think the separation may have been because well you know our soul is something very different mm-hmm. and and, and that 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 belongs to God. Exactly, that belongs to God. So we can't be tinkering around with that. You mm. can, you can have the body, but we will take the God, soul. It's
1: mad. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And so that kind of influence, that kind of understanding about the separation, has influenced even my medical training to today. And and mm. you know the fact that I now understand the plausible mechanisms behind how what I eat can infa- impact my mood, mm. or how what uh, foods I suggest to patients can influence their propensity for depression or Mm. anxiety or even other uh, mental health conditions it's quite fascinating you had your own personal
1: kind of crisis that that led you to doing this deep dive you know away from your traditional like learnings of medicine can you talk me through that
0: yeah sure so uh 10 years ago Mm -hmm. um when i just qualified as a junior doctor i was 24 uh i was working at a busy district general hospital Uh, my bleak going off and um, I I realised my heart was beating exceptionally fast. I was sat in the nurse's station and it was going on for like five minutes. It kept on getting faster and faster and I thought I was going to pass out. I was getting nauseated and then I plucked up the courage to speak to my boss and I said to her, would you mind feeling my pulse because I think I'm going a little bit fast? And Literally, any within like half an hour, I had my bleep taken off me, my clothes stripped. I was in a hospital gown, I was parked right next to a patient I'd just been seeing earlier that day. Oh my god, and <laughs> on a cardiac monitor. And bless her, she was like quite elderly and she was super confused as to why <laughs> her doctor was suddenly a patient next to her. Um, I look back at it, I could laugh at it now, but at the time it was quite scary because my heartbeat was going at like 200 beats per minute, and I had something called atrial fibrillation, oh, yeah. which is where your heartbeats irregularly um and it's very uncommon for a young otherwise fit and healthy person to have this sort of episode and there weren't any triggers and I thought you know what maybe it's just a one-off episode I reverted out of that rhythm without mm. having to have the the paddles on the chest you know, the, the yeah. cardioversion and stuff um because my blood pressure was all fine and, and I didn't have any chest pain so it
1: just faded away eventually. it faded
0: away over about 12 hours okay um But what I thought was going to be an isolated incident actually uh, happened to be something that would go on two to three times per week, lasting anywhere between 12 and 36 hours for the next year.
1: So is it essentially you were having a heart attack?
0: or No. no? Your uh, heartbeat was going up too fast and too slow, so your heart couldn't take something. It was basically a mismatch between the way my heart beats. So yeah. there was a mismatch between the way certain chambers communicate messages between each other. And instead of having that lovely lub dub lub dub yeah. lub dub, it's kind of fibrillating. It's going yeah. lub lub dub dub lub dub, yeah. lub, dub lub dub lub dub like that. It like so when you're mixing out of time. It, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It would sound horrible. to so you to my chest at the time. Like, yeah. what is going on? Yeah. Um, so I then underwent, I mean, I didn't quit medicine at the time. I was still working as a junior doctor. I went and saw a whole bunch of different cardiologists trying to figure out what the triggers were. I had blood tests. I had cardio, cardiac MRIs. I had. And did
1: no one. Did no one. Was there no straight. There's no straight kind of reasons for this happening. It just there, happens to you.
0: Yes. There weren't any triggers found. There were a wow. number of different reasons as to why that might happen to another individual. There could be what we call a re-entry pathway where there's an electricity issue
2: Mm. in the heart.
0: Um, Sometimes it's because of an electrolyte imbalance, so potassium, magnesium. Um, Sometimes it's because of caffeine. Uh, Alcohol can also trigger it. Yeah, Yeah. Um, None of those apply to me. And um, I was going to have something called an ablation, which is yes, I know all, of this. Yeah, yeah so it's where you put a guide wire right into the major vessel. It goes into the heart, and it essentially burns a little ring around where you get these misfiring cells that yeah. are causing this this issue. And um, I was definitely going to go for that. Conventionally minded medic, hundred percent. I was a good candidate, low risk of death, but still a risk of death and stroke and stuff. Yeah. And my mum. Who's not a medic was like no one's going into your heart and burning a hole in it. I I,
1: I can relate. I yeah. mean, I can
0: empathise with her. Yeah, totally. Um, and so I thought, you know, she was just being bonkers and she was being a little bit um over the top. Um, but she was like, you just need to look at your diet and lifestyle. Try and do the basics first, and if it doesn't work, fine, go and have the ablation. And mm-hmm. so I spoke to my cardiologist about that, and they said. That's fine. You can take the medications in the meantime, but you will need to have this ablation at some point. So, whether it's in six months, whether it's in 12 months, you can do the diet and lifestyle thing as long as you keep your medications up, and that's fine. And so, i that was me starting my journey. I didn't have a blueprint, I didn't know where to turn. You know, it's not like someone could tell me, okay, eat more vegetables and fruit and nuts and stuff like that. But so I. So, what?
1: Where are you eating?
0: I was eating a typical medic diet, I reckon. Cereal okay. in the morning, sandwiches, or hospital canned food uh, uh, at okay. lunch. So,
1: like some plastic packet sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. kind
0: of stuff that you'll see in the, in, in the stores that I don't want to yeah. name names. But, um, and then uh, dinner was sort of like something I'd rustled together, which wouldn't be particularly unhealthy to yeah. look at. But what I realized I was lacking was fiber, was plant fibers, was colors, was variety, yeah. was good quality fats. And I steadily increased that and I I, you know I would make my breakfast in the morning uh, with lots of different sort of variety I would always bring Tupperware in I got nicknamed Tupperware Boy by my consultant at the time (laughs) take that yeah exactly I I, I quite uh, I quite enjoy the nickname now Um, but yeah it was and you know I started meditating again something that I Mm. was taught how to do as a teenager by my parents Um, I realized the impact of sleep uh, and stress on me so I try to optimize my sleep whenever I wasn't doing night shifts Mm. and over the course of a year I was tracking the number of AF episodes and um at one point, I remember looking at my phone um, and I was like, oh, it's been 30 days since I've had an AF episode and that turned to three months and that turned wow. to six months. And I am really happy to say I haven't had an episode um, in the last eight years.
1: And you haven't had the ablation?
0: No, I haven't had the ablation. Wow. I still have my, my regular checkups yeah. with my cardiologist and I still see physicians. But the last thing I'd want people to think is that, oh, if I just do that, that will get of rid course. of whatever my condition. Because yeah. I think everyone is an individual, yeah. but certainly... All I did was the basics, and Mm. I think... If you look at the statistics around diet and and um, propensity for different conditions, not just heart conditions, but a whole bunch of other ones, there is a lot we can do with just getting the basics right. Mm. And it's just as simple as getting the fruits and vegetables up, nuts and seeds up, fiber up, mm. and variety up, and keeping your plant focused.
1: Mm. It's like what I always tell my kids: it's like like a car has to have an MOT. You have to give it, you have to give it water, and you have to give it petrol, mm. and you have to give it oil. And all these things it needs to go. Mm. So you're gonna need well, I use you that's what I'm to trying go. to need. <laughs> that broccoli or whatever, yeah. it, like but it's it's so true, isn't it? It's like it's sometimes people forget the very basic things and it's, it's a kind of default, well, I'll just take all those pills and I'll be all right. Yeah. Rather think, than the very basic, simple things that your body needs.
0: I like that analogy because I think we take better care of our cars than yeah. we do ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, I know probably more about my my laptop. And yeah. the, the functioning of that, and you know the software, software updates, and yeah, hardware, yeah, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Then I used to know about my own body, and I mm. think a lot of people don't really check in. You know, the number. Of, I mean, I was I was working last night and had a patient come in, and um, he unfortunately has got something called inflammatory bowel disease, um, yeah. colitis, and um, you know, I just did. I, I always do this with with patients: a quick dietary history, regardless of what they came in with. And yeah. he was having a flare, um, and. It was junk food. There was junk food in it. And there was yeah. there was a whole bunch of other things that was like, no one's... And, and it's not their fault because no one's had that conversation no. with them. Yeah. Because like you said, no one's shouting about this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's a bit of a taboo subject because you don't want to be seen as that, that kind of person that's shouting about food as medicine in in the same way people sometimes talk about food like a pill. Yeah. And that's the wrong way to think about it. Yeah. It's food as medicine as the, the collective actions that we do with our diet as Mm. well as complementing it with lifestyle that creates this truly medicinal package.
1: Yeah. Tell me something, Rupi, Um, you know, we were talking about the systems of medicine and obviously it's variations, you know, in cultures all over the world, different religions and cultures have different approaches, but in terms of eating animals... Something I'm really curious about and often wonder is, you know, for me, I don't see the difference between eating a pig and eating a dog. Mm. They're exactly the same. Pigs are much cleverer um, than dogs, I think. What is it about the way that we've evolved as humans that there's certain animals that we have chosen to be the animals that we eat and kill? Yeah. um, And certain animals that we choose to love and adore as pets?
0: It's really interesting. It's really getting to the human psyche about what defines something that we see as food versus something that we see as friend. Um, And you're right, pigs are just as intelligent Mm. as as dogs and we can train them. And the same with a whole bunch of other animals. Um, I'm not too sure how we differentiate between the two. Um, Historically, I think it was Perhaps easier to domesticate certain animals other, uh, uh, compared to others, like mm. sheep and, and other livestock. Um, and then also looking at different cultures, some of them do eat dogs. Um, like in yeah. Vietnam, there's, horses, there's, a, there's yeah. a yeah, and there's a there's a delicacy around eating dogs and horses. And and um, if you look at um, particularly Southeast Asian countries, there's a lot more variety of animals that they consider as food. Um, yeah, so I think it might be almost like a Western mindset. Um, versus an Eastern mindset. But then in the same area geographically, we have like um, 30 to 40% of India, which represents a billion point two of the population. Well, um, how much is that? It's around 300, 400 million people who are vegetarian um, for religious beliefs, you know. Mm. So I think there's a whole bunch of reasons as to why we choose to eat certain animals other than others. Mm. But I'm not too sure... Um, I'm not too sure exactly what's influenced that it
1: must be something to do with you know back in the day how easy it was to keep animals it must be you're right it must be just the kind of practicality of keeping livestock
0: perhaps yeah because I mean I remember thinking a bit more about this when I read um, Eating Animals by Jonathan Safranco yeah Yeah, incredible book what a book Uh, I I highly recommend everyone read it in fact I think I mentioned it in my first book I was like Mm. this book made me consider a lot about the practices of eating animals Mm. and I think we all need to to be um, uh, aware of that, because I, I think what we, in the same way we eat unconsciously a bad diet, we eat animals unconsciously. That's and That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. And I think we, we need to be conscious about the process of eating animals and understand that this has been the highest sacrifice. And this should really be a prized luxury item, not something that you just go to your kebab shop and, and just yeah. think, oh, this has come out of nowhere. Um, because that's where we over-consume and we don't understand the ramifications of consuming. Mm. Um, it, it can be quite an overwhelming subject, I'll be honest, because this I feel is... like I could
1: do an entire three series of, of pods, as you call them yes. in your podcast, yeah. on, on this.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And,
1: and this is the first time I've ever kind of, I, I've started to talk about it. And, and I, I'm going to open a Pandora's box, I can just feed yeah. it because I have so many questions and so many things, but... I guess I can o- only o- like uh relate back to my own experiences of it and my mother brought me up as a vegetarian and then I kind of moved out of home at 18 and went to college and was like show me McDonald's <laughs> woo and was like it's like it really enjoyed eating like bacon and all, you know all the standard meats for a good 10 years and then in my 30s kind of came back around mm. to that kind of um that 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 feeling of just the morality of it, of feeling uneasy, something deeply uneasy about it. Mm. How do you feel in terms of the morality of eating animals, in terms of the the killing them aspect?
0: I think that unease is very natural. And I think we need to embrace that unease, if I'm honest. Mm. So uh, I don't think I've ever talked about this before, but um, the most incredible experience uh, that I had with regard to this subject was when I shot and prepared my own pheasant. So I went shooting, um, this must have been uh, about t- over 10 years ago now, um, and we shot pheasant and uh, I remember getting the pheasant in my hands and feeling the, the lifelessness in my hands and then plucking and preparing it and then preparing a, a meal out of it and that whole journey was quite revelatory to me and that's when I started first thinking about, okay, am I going to go vegetarian or am I going to go v- vegan or plant-based because this, this was quite grave I guess as an experience mm. but it was one of the best meals ever because I felt truly connected to the food that I was eating mm. and I think it's that connection that people need to to um, to understand and if you're able to uh, to reason with yourself the the opportunity of nourishing your body with animal products and understand the process that's gone behind it and you're okay with that, that's, I think, what mm. a lot more people need to yeah. understand. The other thing is, and I'm quite fearful of this as well because there are other people that perhaps wouldn't uh, understand that and, and doesn't sit well with them, and from a nutritional perspective, a medical perspective, they need animal products. There are a whole subset of people that cannot thrive on plants alone.
1: Really?
0: Yeah, for Who genomic reasons. Yeah, for genomic reasons, they can't convert um, certain uh, pre vitamin A to pro vitamin A. There are certain people that would require um, supplementation. And the number of supplements that you need is kind of like opening a, a Pandora's box of the different types to make mm. sure that you're not going to be at nutritional deficiency. I've had a number of different patients who've come in who've gone uh, vegan uh, for a number of different reasons and they've experienced loss of hair they've had thyroid issues mm. they've had um, uh the, the fatigue, um, a whole bunch of issues that could be related to lack of certain micronutrients in their diet. It's very hard to chase exactly yeah, what those don't nutrients don't are. Are they
1: eating? Are they eating balanced vegan diets? Well, that's, that's the, the that's thing the a lot other of people thing, just end up eating rice and well, this is one baked of the, beans out of a tin. It's like totally
0: yeah. And I, listen, I love baked beans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong the Beans are very good. The a better place
1: for baked beans. Absolutely. But yeah, it's hard to, because I remember telling a nutritionist, I, where was I, what was I doing? I, I was doing, I think it was when I was pregnant, and I, and I was vegan for a while, and um, a nutritionist um, was like, it's very dangerous. And I found, I, I resented that, because she was mm. like, the problem is, is unless you're eating... Uh, to get the protein that you need, you have to eat a certain amount, a combination of foods. So you'd have to eat loads of spinach with something else. Mm. It's like rice and um, dal, or something, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the, or like uh, hummus and I, I can't remember. There's like there's like basic combinations of foods.
0: It, it's basically a grain and a legume. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Thank yeah, you, yeah. doctor.
1: I have <laughs> a clue what I'm talking about, but yeah, and, and I found that really annoying because I was like, God, it's not It's it's hard enough just getting you know i work in town I every mean, day it's a hard enough getting the food yeah. let alone having the food with the other right food
0: yeah. Yeah. to yeah. do it yeah and um, so and yeah. i think from a public health point of view that's probably why but is that true what that you
1: have to have the combinations. Yeah, it? you yeah, do.
0: Yeah. yeah. So the the beauty of plant based eating is that it's all about variety, and that variety gives you two things: not just a full complement of essential mm. amino acids, but it gives you a variety of different phytonutrients from the different types of foods as well. Mm. And you're adding lots of different types of fiber as well. So it's like you're not just eating the grain and the legume for protein alone. What's a legume? A uh, legume is like. a bean. legume. Yeah, I yeah. Thought we We're doing geography <laughs> there for some <something>.
2: reason.
0: <laughs> now we're getting a uh, we're getting uh, like um. Uh, uh, it's, it's basically anything that comes in a shell. So your pea oh, cool. is, a, is a legume, yeah. or like um, beans, haricot beans, yeah. and, um, azuki, all that kind of stuff, yeah. all the good stuff. Um, so when you're combining those different uh, sources of proteins, you're getting a full complement of essential amino acids. Yeah. So there's nine essential amino acids. We get all of those in varying amounts in from meat products. Mm. We get a proportion of those from different products. So whole grains like brown rice for example or Mm. oats will have some and then your legumes your lentils your peas that kind of stuff will have the others and then when you combine that you have a complete protein okay um so that's why i think from a public health point of view where people just don't tend to think about this stuff at all that's when it could be dangerous however with someone like yourself who's Mm. very clearly intuitive about what they're eating Mm. and has made a conscious decision to eat mainly plants I don't think it's dangerous. I think you just need to be a bit more aware, particularly during pregnancy states, of mm. what you might be missing out on. And the main thing, before I forget, is iodine because the, the largest source of iodine um, is from dairy in this country. And if you're taking out dairy, then you're taking a big source of iodine
1: out. Mm. Um, do you know how I uh, broke off my veganism?
0: How oh, did you break off? I was your...
1: presenting this huge, um, it, it was called the Red Bull Culture Clash. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a massive uh-huh. music event in, mm. uh, in the, it's at the O2? Mm. It was a big 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 deal. It was a big stressful event. Mm-hmm. Lots of testosterone. It was mostly guys. I was a girl, I was the host and um I was pregnant, but I was pregnant and I couldn't tell anyone that horrible phase of not being able to tell anyone. And um I was totally sober obviously and um someone put a plate of donuts in my dressing room. <laughs> and i just saw one and i and i ingested it in yeah. about 5 seconds like <laughs> and it was like oh god it's a donut it's got eggs in it and then i had another one and then it was like and then and then that's a slippery slope i was yeah. like oh, i'll just have butter on my toast yeah. and then i'll just have i'll just have some crisps and then yeah. next thing you know but
0: yeah. Now exactly. I've kind of
1: I found that the concrete boundaries didn't work for me too much. Mm, and I find mm. that with a lot of people who go vegan, I remember yeah. speaking to my friend Jessie Ware who who went vegan, um, and she was like, Oh, it's great, like I made sweet potato fritters on the first day and then I made this amazing soup and so but everything has to be handmade and homemade and you can't, yeah. it's not sustainable. Yeah. Especially yeah. when you're gigging and
0: yeah, you're on the road yeah. and you're going to service stations. Like totally, it's just yeah. So
1: it's kind of finding a way to make it work for you.
0: Yeah, totally. And you think, like, just this, that example of Jesse Ware making uh, yeah. fritters from scratch, for example, yeah. that... That is a, a vegan, quote-unquote, diet. That's a lot healthier than what we're comparing people's diets to in observational studies. So it's no wonder we see these incredible benefits, supposedly, from a yeah. vegan diet because they're transitioning to cooking from scratch. Even, even if you, the food that you're making yeah. isn't particularly overly healthy, you're cooking yeah. from scratch, which is a massive leap. How much meat do you eat? I would say I will have some red meat once every three weeks, two oh, or three isn't. weeks.
1: And where do you get it from?
0: Oh, the the, the best sources. And you know, I, I, I talk about this, and I, I really feel like I'm coming at from a point of privilege because a I'm educated in in yeah. the background as to why this is important, mm. but b I can afford to have a piece of of meat, you know, that I know where the butcher's got it from. Yeah. I know, and if I go to a restaurant to eat it, I'm I'm really fastidious. my my friends find me really annoying to what go out with. Say? I'm always asking the waiter, where's the meat come from? And they look at me like, why are you asking me that? And I'm like, I want to know where the meat's come from. Mm. Which farmer is it? Is it grass-fed? or Is it mm. organic? Is it, you know, how... Give me some impression mm. that the chef has put some thought into where they're sourcing their products from. Mm. Um, and that comes at a premium, unfortunately. But that that's something that I do personally, and I don't expect everyone to do that. Yeah. But yeah, I, I like... Yeah, red meat probably once every two or three weeks. I'll have fish maybe once a week, yeah. um, and I usually have the small fish like sardines, anchovies, Interesting. Yeah, yeah, mackerel, the good, the good oily stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Talking about the kind of the awareness of meat. I had a conversation with a with a friend of mine a, a good few months ago now and it really struck me because we were talking about food and 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 he was talking about an Indian that he had and he had, I think he had a lamb buna. And I was like, oh, little lamb. And he was like, "This is I'm the annoying friend that always does that. And, and he was like, oh, yeah, I just kind of forget. You just forget that it's a lamb. You do. And it's like you fucking forgot yeah. that a small baby animal was slaughtered and taken away from its mother yeah, for yeah. your dinner. Yeah. Like, this is the bit that frustrates me. is, is just the lack of people. There's, there's, people don't have to think, you know, it's what you're talking about. Mm. You went out and you killed an animal mm. and you felt it in your hands mm. and you plucked the feathers out. Mm. Like, if people were, if there was a kind of compulsory process of having to walk through an abattoir before you eat a meal of a burger, there's no fucking way people Mm. would eat the burgers. And that's what makes me mad. It's just so easy to hide this horrible, horrible, like, process that's going on. and. And obviously it's all corrupt and it's all the fucking you know the meat companies and they all don't want you to know all that stuff but i just I, it 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 kind of blows my mind again in the same way that you were saying about people not knowing about food and how it can affect your brain and and how it can be such a good you know benevolent source of uh, kind of to your body how can you not know that what you're eating comes from an animal being killed same with milk
0: yeah same i think there's you're
1: eating the fucking breast milk of a cow yeah. who has had their kid taken away from them so they could it's just like and when i became a mom this really blew my mm. mind mm. cuz breastfeeding is mad and you feel like a cow because you feel like a <laughs> vessel yeah. you know it's just producing this just food and it's it's quite it's really quite a psychological shift but then just the idea of 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 living for that yeah. living to have to do that all the time for other people's benefit was just it just kind of
0: I I totally understand where you come from, because I think um, a lot of people would struggle because we're so far removed from it. A lot of people would struggle to then when it's in their face of like, oh, my God, how on earth have I just been? passively consuming yeah, this without really passive. thinking about it yeah that's what it is there's some really interesting points I think that um, we could learn from the Danes so the, the Danes actually as part of the schooling education take them to an abattoir take the kids to an abattoir incredible and they actually show them the process of where the meat comes from Uh, how it's produced. I don't know if they actually show them the slaughtering process, but they definitely take them to the factory where this will happen. So people, they have a lot more, again, intuitiveness about where their food comes from. When it comes to like um, milk and stuff, now we're really, again, privileged because we have loads of plant-based options. So if that sort of thought process really is alien to you, you hate the, you know, the fact that we have a dairy industry that, Mm. yes, has some unsavory practices as it has done for millennia. Um, There are so many other options that have four to, Milk's where you can actually get all that stuff from. So the fortified ones uh, that you want to look out for are iodine, riboflavin, uh, B other B vitamins as well. What milk do you Uh, drink? If you do, so I don't drink dairy milk because I have issues with, um, as a lot of people have actually, Yeah. yeah, with lactose. So we lack that enzyme. A lot of people like the enzyme, um, unless it's uh, come in a fermented form, in which okay. case you have live bacteria which ferment a lot of the sugar molecules for you and it makes mm. it a lot more digestible, okay. which is essentially, I think, how we've adapted to to consume milk. Um, I My... My dad grew up on a on a farm, a vegetarian. Mm. Uh, we had. Same goat- as my
1: mum. She grew up on a pig farm,
0: vegetarian. A vegetarian, yeah. He, yeah. We we keep cows um buffalo. Wow, we have goats. Buffalo. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. They um they plow a lot of the. Well, I mean, it's like the farming practices are still pretty um mm. pretty out there. Um, it's a it's a little farm in Punjab, and um, I remember. We used to go to um the, the where we kept the cows mm. and we'd milk the cows in the morning. And we would then take that milk to um the kitchen and we'd churn it into butter to make yeah. yogurt out of it, make an Indian sort of cheese that takes a little bit longer. Um, I love Indian cheese. And yeah, that paneer, paneer and stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's it's incredible. And so I, I don't know, I, I, I've been a part of that process and so I understand it a lot more and I don't want to like beautify the process because that is not how conventional dairy is produced in this country and beyond and and I have
1: to stipulate that that, when I'm talking about dairy in that way that's what I mean I I know that there's a lot of kind of independent small dairy farms and dairy farmers out there who have happy animals as happy as you can be in that scenario who are you know yeah um but it's just for me; it's the bit that I find horrific, and my sister calls it the Holocaust. is is the is factory farming, yeah, and the idea of animals being bred to be slaughtered. Hundred percent. And there's something so deeply wrong about that. And my sister, this, I, I, you know, we could talk. We talk about it for hours. She's convinced that there's going to be a point where humans look back at this period from the kind of 1950s to now, when factory mm. farming was was prevalent, and and kind of. Look at it in the same way as we did, yeah. the Margus. Did you ever see that Simon Amstel documentary?
0: I did, yeah. <gasps> it's similar it to that. It really did. Yeah. you know what? It made me think a lot. I think I might have posted it on social media or something. I was like, wow, this made me think. Uh, a lot more about our practice and I think it's uh, it's something that Aziz Zari said in his latest comedy uh, yeah. sketch like w- we should look back on ourselves 50 years from now and think we were shitty human beings yeah. because it's always the process of evolution whether that be morality whether it be technological advances we should all be progressing and whether that is toward a society that appreciates you know the value of animal life to the point where we don't mm. eat them anymore and we figure out ways in which to optimise our human nutrition through other means, that could be great. Although there's another sort of point of thinking that we have evolved to eat some animal products in our diet. And I'm probably of that persuasion, even Mm. though very much like a lot of my colleagues, I eat 85 to 90% plant-based. But yeah, no, I think it's a a really interesting sort of psychological uh, pondering moment where you just think about the the wide implications of this. I, I think factory farming for me is horrific. And that's why... I will never have that lamb anymore. Mm, I'll never yeah. step into a McDonald's and even you know, c- contribute to what they are doing because you can mm. go to a McDonald's. And this is the other thing about vegans. Sorry to get my high here. Another thing about vegan options right now is that those options are being provided to you by the same... People who, who are, are yeah. contributing to the Can't animal see. factory. So you can pat yourself on the back for going to a fast food chain and getting yourself a vegan burger. But yeah. the, those same dollars, those same pounds are being are contributing to the mass manufacturing of animals. Mm. Um, so I think we need to be even more conscious and more aware of, of, where, of how much power we have to shape our food landscape mm. by choosing where to eat.
1: You know you're talking, and we are both talking as we say from a privileged perspective oh, like, 100%. what about what about like inner city kids who are brought up you know with chicken shops and 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 mcdonald's and fast food being a very kind of default option and not and again not having the the benefit of being brought to a farm or a yeah. or an abattoir like how do you how do you um help people to learn yeah. about this stuff on a mass scale
0: yeah totally i, I it reminds me of this time i was um Uh, the ambassador for the food conference, London Food Produce Conference. And we had some inner city kids come in and we did a little tour with them and stuff. We took them to these tomato farmers. um, uh, There are greenhouses in in Holland and stuff. And this little girl, I think she was eight years old, she'd never tried a tomato before. It literally broke my heart. And she made a face when she (laughs) went into it and stuff. But but like, she'd never tried a tomato before. And I was like, this is the reality of the situation. We don't have food being taught to uh, to kids in in schools we don't have that relationship with food anymore, mm. and that's that's what we need to um, address and that 's how we scale this because mm. if it 's ingrained from childhood during our education, the importance of food and growing not, food growing right? food, so good exactly. in
1: every way learning how to grow something for every part
0: of you right one hundred percent yeah about how it contributes to a healthy mind, a healthy body, yeah. a healthy everything a healthy environment um that's how you scale the idea and i I really want to push um community kitchen projects like Made in Hackney that's how you scale they are an incredible organisation where they teach the local population how to source plant-based foods how to get it cheaply how to cook with it Mm. that's how you scale and it's going to take a lot of like um, forward-thinking politicians and people in government to really have this foresight yeah. into how we actually change uh, people's perspectives on on health eating. Because uh, I, I tell you what, the food industry are not going to no, of make not. moves. No of way, they're, not. they're, they're just
1: going to hold back for as long as they can. But it, it's interesting because it makes total sense. You know, you see all about the Jamie Jamie Oliver stuff and mm. trying to change the laws, talking about that aspect yeah. of it like look how much money the NHS spends mm-hmm. on diabetes mm-hmm. and people who are overweight and how that reflects in every single even things like when you're overweight and you have to have a baby and you have to be induced there's so much more mm-hmm. money and time and man hours and woman hours yeah. put into people who are who are unhealthy yeah surely it just makes sense to change the fucking law yeah, yeah, yeah. for every, every aspect
0: of it. Yeah, totally. To save yeah. your fortune. Yeah. and I mean, we, we, it's, Again, I think hopefully we'll look back on this moment in time, like what on earth we were thinking? Because the amount of money spent in prevention is around 5% of the NHS budget. It's the next level. And the proportion of uh, expenditure on preventable disease is coming up to around 25%. So you think, well, we're spending over $25 billion on diseases that are essentially preventable how do we figure out how to nudge the population the right way? Because there's a difference between mandating it and making people aware from themselves. And so the behavior change comes from them. This is something like we practice on a micro scale in general practice. So it's a technique called motivational interviewing. If I tell you, Annie, this is what you need to eat. You're eating junk food. You're eating Mm. all this kind of crap. You need to eat more vegetables, more fiber, more variety of plants, go nuts and seeds, go and go and do it. There's, very slim chance that you're going to be able to stick with that unless you have the motivation that's come from within yourself. Yeah. If I figure out a way to to find out what your next best step is, so have you thought about this? What kind of things would you would you change? You know, have you thought about a meal that you'd want to try and experiment with? Yeah. And you say, oh, well, maybe breakfast. Maybe I'll try oats. Great, fantastic idea. Try oats. Try that for a couple of weeks, and then let's see how you get on. And that's when okay. we we send people in a trajectory towards behaviour change otherwise if we're slamming it in people's faces it's not going to work they're, they're going to react it's going to have an antagonistic effect it's the same
1: with veganism isn't it same Pe- with veganism yeah, people same. are like oh go away go off your high horse <laughs> totally. give me a steak <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know what I mean it, it feels like it's, it feels like veganism is like oh the geeky ba- the <laughs> boring guys and it's like it's, 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 and it's all perception isn't it it's like we were talking about that Game Changers documentary yeah. I found that so interesting this documentary on Netflix go and watch it now about the the kind of perception of meat-eating and how steak is for men. <laughs> it will make you strong and virile and give you a huge libido. <laughs> and it's absolutely the opposite thing. Like, the strongest people in the world, like, in this documentary anyway, yeah. I'm sure there's others, but, like, th- th- literally the strongest man in the world is a vegan, yeah. you know, the fastest, yeah. the, the people who have, the, like, the longest endurance as athletes. It's mad.
0: It was quite. Cool. I. You just need
1: a really good marketing campaign. Yeah, yeah, you
0: do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, there's no big, there's no money in broccoli, um, <laughs> so it was actually a bit. But, but, well, you know but can't
1: people just figure out a way to make some cash out of vegetables? Yeah, I like, think, you
0: know what. But they, they are. If you look yeah, at, yeah, so yeah, it's happening. I was at the Future Food Tech conference the other day. I was lucky enough to be speaking there because everyone's talking about plant based proteins. And if you're an investor at the mm. moment, you you are pouring money into different plant based proteins, of yeah. which three main different types. Ones that are made out of whole vegetables like beetroots and beans yep. and legumes. Yeah. Um, another one that is like uh, made out of uh, mushroom, mycelia um, yep. you know those sort of fermented products and then packaged into quite a nice tasting patty. And then the other ones are cell based uh, which are Ooh, ones that are... All, they, they're making the Yeah exactly. Yeah. They're, they're very um, polarising. Yeah. 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 And there's a lot of uh, genetic modification uh, uh, talk going on there as well. And so those three sort of buckets of Plant-based proteins are hugely, hugely popular right now, and there will be a lot of money uh, to be made in that. As as, especially if uh, the major fast food chains find a more efficient way to make those into, you know, digestible sort of. uh replacements for their meat products and if they can you know have the carbon offsetting as well and they get remunerated for that it's kind of like a win win.
1: Yeah. Um Dr. Rupi, thank you so much. Oh my pleasure. I feel like I could talk to you for ten hours. <laughs> so it might have to drag you back in here sometime. Right, and um, before we before you go, um let's just look forward for one second in, in terms of you and how everything's going with you. So Doctor's Kitchen Podcast, like yeah. smashing it at the moment. Oh thanks. What yes. have you got going on next year? So obviously you're a working G B
0: yes, yeah working as GP and in emergency medicine as well um yeah. culinary medicine this is kind of going back to what we were talking about with how we scale uh different um healthy eating behaviors and stuff culinary medicine is a non-profit i started with uh dietitians okay. registered nutritionists um uh, health, uh, behavior, psychologists, and other GPs and, and doctors who are as passionate about me as reforming medical education to include nutrition. So it's basically where we teach future doctors and current doctors the foundations of nutrition as well as how to cook. So we're using the kitchen as a classroom. And
1: is this a, a kind of charity thing? Like, are you getting paid for this? Tell me, someone from above in medicine is making this. No, 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 no. we just
0: all made it up, and I bribed them with food. So wow. they would come round to mine, and I, I bribed them with food. I cook for everyone. But But um, we're working with Bristol Medical School. We have Great. an elective there, so a four-week intensive course. And then UCL are the first medical school to have this uh, course as part of the mandatory Amazing. training. So our aim over the next five years is to scale this. So every medical school has calorie medicine. So every future doctor will have an experience in a kitchen with a professional chef, a registered dietitian, and a GP who can actually teach them about how to change this into motivation interviewing practices and change the way. That's
1: incredible. That makes such a huge difference to so many thousands of people. I hope so. I really hope so. Yeah. Well, best of luck with it.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Oh man, I feel like genuinely that I've just touched the sides of that conversation. I want to have another podcast with Dr. Rupi about medicine and the history of medicine. I wanted to have another podcast with Dr. Rupi kind of honing more in on vegetarianism and veganism. Um, I want to have a podcast on um, factory farming. It's all ahead of me Um, and I want to hear from you. If there's more, if there's stuff that you want to hear from more with regards to this topic. It's fucking huge, this topic. Um, Please let me know. FindingAnnieMac at gmail.com. And yeah, absolutely love that. On next week's episode of Finding Annie, I welcome... uh, I don't really know where to start by describing this lady. Journalist, comedian, uh, world-class podcaster broadcaster, writer and amateur illustrator? Maybe she'll approve of that. Her name is Alice Esme Levine. Uh, She is my colleague at BBC Radio 1 um, and she is one-third of probably one of the most successful podcasts ever made. Uh, A podcast so huge that they sold out Royal Albert Hall for their live performance there. Uh, It's called My Dad Wrote a Porno. Delighted to have Alice on next week. I want to speak to her about two main themes. I want her to teach me about podcasts and podcasting because, as we know, I'm still new to this game. And I also want to talk about funny women at large and women in comedy um, and where they sit and where they're going uh, in terms of representation and just talk about our favourite funny women, which is always a lovely topic. So, yeah, very excited for Alice Levine on the podcast next week. Thank you for listening, guys. Bye!